Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to the first ever episode 33 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and as always, we're coming to you live from London in the heart of Fintech up here in level 39. Welcome to part two of our year-end review for 2016. Check out episode 32 if you've missed the first one. But joining us again are Dave Birch, Director of Innovation at Consult Hyperion, Isabella Kaminska, an FT Alphaville blogger, and Ben Brabin, Chief Executive for Level 39. Enjoy the show. Okay, and we are back now picking up in July. So in July, the phenomenon that took over the entire world and everybody thought was going to be the biggest thing ever, ever, ever was Pokemon Go, which now in December nobody cares about in any way, shape or form, right? Did you not catch them all, David? I didn't. I gave up and didn't care, I'm afraid. So um, the other things that happened in July was, so we had Andy Murray winning Wimbledon again, which he celebrated being sort of reasonably glum and dour, as he generally does about everything, I guess. Um, we had the Chilcom report come back and states pretty much what everybody knew which was Tony Blair overstated the case for war and was pretty much unprepared for going into it which is fun um, and also we had Verizon announcing the 4.83 billion pound acquisition of Yahoo which uh, was kind of quite a, uh, a strange thing to was that really there was that someone using their email account yeah <laughs> potentially yeah if companies I, don't die they get acquired for very small amounts compared to what they were worth five years ago it's it's I'll take 4.83 billion right now, just putting it out there. Um, Theresa May, so was a major thing that happened in July, being appointed the Conservative Party MP and Prime Minister. So that was pretty my, major. My favourite ever FT tweet. I, I don't think it was you, but someone in the FT tweeted, it's a really odd day in the newsroom because the Prime Minister residing is only the third top story. <laughs> <laughs> odd day in the newsroom. It tells you something weird's going on, Sounds right? Sounds like Katie Martin. On, on, uh, on Andy Murray, um, there was, uh, I don't know if any of you saw that he won Sports Personality of the Year a couple of nights ago, which I just thought there's something about the name of that award for having personality. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, really? Ironic, obviously. Yeah. Clearly the, the biggest thing that happened in July, of other than all those things, is obviously that we started up this podcast as well so it's it's been uh, only since july so we've been doing this for six months now which cool. feels like an absolute lifetime in terms of doing it every week but i'm sure it does to listeners as yeah, well. yeah i imagine so apologies <laughs> everybody out there really sad that we put you through well, this we've got for to throw months. homage to the first fintech podcast that i'm aware of which was with dave's of course dave but you've been doing a podcast since 1817 <laughs> <laughs> since the telegraph yeah. distributed on tape raven yeah. but uh, indeed there were some other things interesting things that happened um, this month as well. So we had courts coming out and saying, as part of a study that they did with the US government, that if you make less than $20 an hour, a robot is probably going to take your job. What do we think about that one, Jay? Um, 
Well, it was the Council of Economic Advisers. They were and they were using an Oxford University study um, that guesstimated that forty seven percent of U.S. jobs were at risk from automation, you know, uh, um, AI, robotics, the whole thing. Uh, and so, what they did in the U.S. was to look at. Uh, if you pulled out the skills and wages and worked out from the, the Oxford University study who were most at risk, then it was 83% of the jobs paying less than $20 an hour were going to be fully automated. So, But you could have said the same in the Industrial Revolution, right? I mean, the, the jobs of skilled labour have kind of moved around the world. They just ha- they haven't gone away. They've been globalised. There's a book called Rise of the Robots that claims this is different because as the robots take over our jobs, there's going to be no other jobs to replace those jobs. Whereas in the industrial area, other jobs ar- arose as a result of those changes. I'm going to dissent again. This study is the Michael Osborne study, I believe. And he's been like banging on about this for a few years now, so it's not really very new. But the issue here is whether... The fact that these are cognitive, you know, jobs rather than sort of pure muscle jobs, is that going to be the defining difference? And I'm going to say no, because if it was, we wouldn't have created lots of social media editor jobs in the last few years. So you you solve one problem, you create a whole new problem. And unless these algorithms actually have... a uh, the capacity to uh, replace the sort of human jobs that we in, indulge in sort of our like you know psycho psychotherapist carer um all the stuff that is emotive and and has empathy in it unless they can replace those jobs i don't think I, that's going to be there's a different problem problem here which is that um you'll get new jobs arising in some form like robot repairers or spaceship manufacturers or whatever um but you're going to have Thanks to life sciences, a huge number of people on this planet, you know, 7 billion today, let's say 14 billion by 2050 or thereabouts. Where are they all going to work? Where are they going to live? How are they going to sustain themselves? You know, I think that's the, the biggest question. No, but how about a counter-narrative, well, which is that perhaps the problem is that so far we haven't been replacing these jobs with robots. Actually, the robot revolution stands to empower all of us, whereas... Um, unless so we they all just end sit up back being and watch TV all day. well, because no, what has happened thus far is that these jobs have been outsourced to lower wage workers, right? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there hasn't really been a wealth introduction into the system. It's been a zero sum game. If you actually create a new source of capital, which is a robot, much like a slave, comes in and starts doing your work for you, that is a form of wealth um, addition into the, into society. The, the if question you to buy the robot. Well, this is this becomes a question: How affordable is is it going to be? Like Concord, that after all is said and done, uh, the economics just don't work because you still have to power the robot, you still have to build it, and actually, it takes too many people to build the robot for for, for it to have any economic value. Um, or is it going to be that these are going to be production line robots available to everybody, and it will be much like the car or um, the washing machine? If it's the latter, if we can make these robots really um, cost efficient, then that stands to be a massive uh, wealth. Source. But then going back to our story earlier, you know, robots replacing traders. It's not just $20 an hour jobs. It's, you know, people who currently are earning $500,000 plus a big bonus. I was about to say exactly the same thing. But for me, this isn't about robots. It's about software. You know, yeah. when you look at, okay, let's take, you know, a big telecommunications company and you've got WhatsApp with, in 2013, had 200 million active users with 50 staff. It's a massive deflationary force to, 
to be able to deliver such a uh, you know such an amazing company with fewer well, and fewer staff. Needed, just as you needed a new political system in order to deal. With, actually, I, should, I think Chris is being a little too negative about this population. You're being a little too Malthusian here, Chris, because I read a story in the paper today which was that men are going to start dying because of overexerting themselves with sex robots. <laughs> this, no, I, if you've got to go, though, that's right? That's in the yeah. papers today. That's a good way to no, go. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so the population might not be quite as great as you're, you're thinking there. Mm. Um, but also, you have to have a new political system to work out how to distribute the wealth. So the fact that you have robots doing everything, as long as you've got a system which means the productive gains from that are distributed appropriately, what does it matter? In the 1930s, Henry Ford, um, and I'll try and find the, the reference to this, um, actually gave a lot of his workers a four-hour workday because he had such an efficient um, manufacturing plant. And what they found was that socially, all the workers who didn't work for Ford in, in Detroit that worked for, for the competitors would mock their friends that did work for Ford for being lazy and not being proper workers. So socially, it had implications on how they were seen as how active and how productive they were in society. Secondarily, of course, being of the time, um, there, there was a revolt amongst the wives of these men because these men were stuck under their feet for the whole day. So it, was, it, it does create social cost and social change. This idea of its utopia to do no work is, is strange. But it's interesting, the last major revolution we saw really, I think, was the smartphone or the phone, mobile phone revolution. And actually, has that net reduced jobs or uh, created jobs or is it just shuffle the deck and move the ground a little bit I personally can't move on the high street for phone selling shops and you know people in those phone selling shops trying to sell me phones I'm actually I'm talking about the news this year or are you just going to have a chance sorry. Well, <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Well, I think the fun thing next month is that actually in August not a lot happened everybody seems to have buggered off for, for, uh, for summer holidays and actually watching the opening of the Olympics and everything that went on there Oddly enough, while everybody was watching the Olympics, the migrant crisis sort of deepened. So we had uh, 6,500 migrants being rescued out of the sea in only 30 incidents, which is quite a terrifying piece that sort of happened. Um, probably moving on from August, given, uh, like I say, everybody was not doing a, a great deal. September, we had the Russian elections with Putin backed. Uh, United Russian Party winning 54% to the par parliamentary seats, which I'm not sure anybody really would have uh, expected anything other than him staying in power, right? No Going idea. back to our house of cards, Game of Thrones <laughs> yeah. metaphors, I think that one was well and truly tipped in the right way. Uh, and we also had Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg coming out and pledging $3 billion to medical research to cure, prevent and manage all diseases, which sounds like quite a uh, lofty target, and given his um, lack of ability to deliver on the AI one, uh, we'll see how far that three billion actually gets us. It's interesting that when you get billions of money in your in your wallet, you just start becoming a, a, a philanthropist and mm. help the planet. Like self-actualization, right? You know, yeah. But there's a difference because, like, it's puzzling. Like, like, if I was Bill Gates, if I had seventy-five billion dollars. I guarantee you I would be spending $74.9 billion on curing diseases and life extension and all those other things, right? I think the guy is amazing to spend that money on mosquito nets and whatever for other yeah. people. Yeah. I, would be, I would be spending it all on life, life extension, believe me. <laughs> Your life extension, <laughs> of course. not anybody else's. And if there are incidental benefits for other people, all to the well and good. Yeah. Well, that's what Sergey and Larry are doing at Google, of course, is they're spending a lot on life extension, part what, of the reason. Why else would you spend the money on but the thing a billionaire? Well, it's interesting you've got the segregation between the billionaires who are trying to save the planet and those who are trying to go to other planets. So you've got Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson all saying, let's build spaceships. And that's where their billions go. Whilst you've got Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, you know, saying let's cure diseases and save the planet. It's very well, I think it's, you know, it's 
just philosophy. division of labour, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they Elon's had a meeting. Gonna, they, like we're going to dump these losers and yeah. go to Mars, and when we get there, we want to live forever. I mean, that makes complete sense to me. Sounds oh, good. Yeah. Does it compare to Brexit going to Mars? Earth is it. One of the reasonably the major things that happened in September was all of the sort of uh, fun issues that came out about Wells Fargo making up quite a lot of accounts in terms of doing it. Um, this sort of went nuclear and then has gone quite quiet, hasn't it, I'd say, in terms of doing it. The sort of ramifications and uh, repercussions of it have, have sort of well, they, gone they, away they a little acted, bit. They had a bit of a crackdown, didn't they? Because the woman that was in charge of all of that, they fired her and they only gave her $125 million. Oh, she, she is going to have a terrible so, Christmas, isn't she? Uh, so tough action. <laughs> we're, we're behind them, aren't yeah. right? And they only fired 5,000 people or something, was it? So mm-hmm. I suppose no big deal. Mm. That's probably because they're all doing it. Because it would never have happened with a blockchain. <laughs> Clearly. Um, moving on to the next one. This was a story in TechCrunch. It was Facebook Messenger finally sort of getting into the payment space, something that people have been sort of uh, fearing for quite some time in terms of people, uh, Facebook or one of the big social media giants actually getting into the payments pieces. Um, what do we think about that? They've been threatening to do this for years, though. They've had like a payments license out of Ireland for what three, four years. I remember first running into Facebook at, a, at an event in Dublin, Glenbrook Partners, I think Scott Loftness and those guys did an event in in Ireland in two thousand in Dublin in two thousand and eleven, and there was about five people from Facebook in there. So it's clearly something they've been looking at for a while, but just can't figure out where they want to play because I figured they'd have done it already. And it's always these small scale experiments. Whereas Facebook isn't afraid of ripping the bandaid off; like they'll they'll just change how the newsfeed works to the you know and annoy all of their users. They seem to have gotten out of doing that. But you remember the uproar about you know. News feed and wall changes and all this sort of stuff. They've not gone all in on this. So, um, is it just something where they're, they're uh, fiddling around on the edges here, or are they trying a to copy WeChat? Friend, I mean, a friend of mine. I mean, I won't. I won't say anything about the company involved. But a friend of mine, uh, an impeccable source, uh, told me that he was at, he was at a meeting in Silicon Valley with some various Silicon Valley companies, um, with some bankers to do with new technology and what they're going to do next year or something like that. And the Silicon Valley guys he's talking to, all of their questions were about PSD2. And the guys from the bank, it was a continental bank, not a UK bank, had no idea what they were talking about, never heard of it, right? Because they're worried about Baal and whatever. PSD2, because it's just payments, you know, wasn't part of their landscape. And yet the Silicon Valley people were absolutely 100% clued up about it. Interesting. So it seems to me that it's hardly a stretch to predict... You know, if you look at if you look at the figures for Venmo in the US compared to the figures for say Pingit in the UK, mm. I mean Pingit is immediate and blah blah blah, bubbling along. I use it all the time, but a lot of people don't. Venmo, on the other hand, pff, going through the roof because of the integration with social media and because it's become part of the landscape and this sort of thing. It's even a, a, a Sus- verb now. I Venmo. Yeah, yeah. You know. there was, was it? I can't remember. Was it Suzanne B from? Uh, said uh, was talking about, so you know says somebody cat you know what cash is it's like Venmo but for old people <laughs> um, so it's hardly a stretch to see you know on your little WhatsApp menu when you go to press the plus to send something there's like my location my contact details money you know to me that seems like a I think it's really I don't even see that as a but, radical but, but this, prediction this, I, seems to remember, I remember this this story because it was less that they built uh, payments into Facebook Messenger and more that they'd made it available to bot creators 
So they had sort of 30,000 bots that had been made within Facebook Messenger, which bot is almost the wrong word. It's almost sort of integration with a store, with a merchant, with something. So Jason's uh, flower store could send you a, a note to say, send your mum a you know, bunch of flowers at Christmas, click on the button and the payments will actually happen. So it was much more of a move towards the sort of WeChat embedding commerce within the, yeah. the web chat interface, yeah. which is interesting is that because I do think payments have moved out of the, the, um, the bank the bank app yeah, yeah, no, into agree. wherever customers are, but and with that, yeah. the commerce that goes. What, with what I'm saying is, when that when that little payment button shows up in WhatsApp, I don't think anybody will be surprised. I think it's a. Yeah. I don't regard that as a radical prediction at all. But I also think we've missed one of, the, one of the biggest stories here, which is um, there's a group called Financial Innovation Now Creation Estates, which is Google, Amazon, Apple, PayPal, Intuit, Facebook isn't part of it. But they came out with a paper earlier this year saying that America's regulatory structures are so archaic that there's no way that anyone can create a national bank. And so the Office of the Control of the Currency has now come out and said they're going to give a national charter for fast startup for fintech banks to launch in the USA, as well as maybe making more opportunity for the Facebooks and the Googles and Apples of this world. Following that up, they've then sent a public letter to Donald Trump saying this is what we need from a fintech agenda viewpoint. So you've got these internet giants now starting to put pressure on creating access to financial markets against the wishes of the banks. I mean, the banks in retaliation have actually shut down aggregation services. They're stopping data sharing and they're not allowing API access. You know, unlike here where we've got regulations saying you've got to give their API data access, you know, the US banks are saying, get lost, it's the customer who owns the data, we're not going to share it with anyone. I mean, I looked at the, con- I mean, I've seen the consultation. I mean, I, 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 although I, I agree with the kind of spirit of the idea of the of a, of a national fintech uh, charter bank, instead of having to have fifty different state licenses, I, I would prefer it if it was much more like the European version of it. Because I think, however, accidentally the the Commission has come up with the right structure, which is to separate the payment regulation from the banking regulation. You you know, a national bank charter isn't the solution. What what we need is a national fintech charter essentially like a payment institution so that you can join Visa and MasterCard you can handle payments you can have API access to instant payment stuff like that but you're not going to lend anybody any money that's the systemically risky stuff that needs the that needs the really strong legislation so personally I, I you know I'm sure there are bigger experts than me on this around the place but I I think it would be nice to see those two beginning to separate as they are in the EU you know just move payments a little further away from banking you know, most of these fintech things don't need to be a bank. They just need access to the payment systems. Mm-hmm. So. True. Um, moving on to um, October, and actually we had quite a lot of change going on here. We had Bob Dylan is awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, which I don't believe, did he ever actually pick that up in the end? Wasn't no, he sent a letter saying thanks. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, the Washington Post releases quite an interesting videotape of Donald Trump boasting about doing some rather unsavory things with women uh, without their consent, which seemed like quite an interesting one, uh, but didn't perturb what follows in November. And we had the US White House coming out and saying it's confident that Russia is behind a recent email hacking attempts to influence the US election, which um, later transpires to be quite interesting as well. Uh, we also had of note here, and no pun intended, the uh, Samsung Note. 7 repeatedly catching fire and, and Samsung deciding probably not to produce any more of those. Did anybody have a Samsung 
I have a Galaxy I... S7, but not a Note 7, so unfortunately I'm still allowed to get on planes. Yeah, I still see the sign, like, you can't get on the plane with one of these things, but... Um... It's the worst brand damage I've ever seen, in terms of, you know, every time you go to an airport saying, if you have a Samsung 7, <laughs> do, you know, turn it off and throw it in the bin. <laughs> I've been telling Simon that for, for quite some time. <laughs> that, is um, the, that is the thing, because as you just said it, people say a Samsung 7. They don't say a Galaxy Note S7 uh, or a Galaxy Note 7. Like right. the, the specific product lines that were affected were specifically the Note, which are much, much larger. The S7 is absolutely fine and is a wonderful phone. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> Not an Android fanboy at all. Um, but, it, but that uh, lack of differentiation, people take it on the whole brand, which I think is your point, right? It, it's... It hits the whole brand. Everything Samsung does in phones now suddenly becomes, oh, mine looks a bit like that. I, I, I don't want this thing anymore. It's going to catch fire. And Simon Taylor, sponsored by Samsung. <laughs> and, and so I, I don't know how long that, that brand stuff lasts. So does it? Does it? I, I think it's the, the permanent reminder every time you get on a plane that that might catch fire. I think it's the continual yep. reinforcement of it. And it's you know, you are not having a Samsung. Yeah. How long? Full stop. How long will they missing be missing out, dude? So, yeah, you're missing out on all that warmth I'm on Apple a cold boy. day. <laughs> so I, guess, wanna... I guess one thing we I mean we haven't covered on some of the headlines as the as the sheer number of hacking uh, scandals stories at scale attacks that seem to be happening throughout 2016 well I don't think they really it's all the Russians according to the Americans on the sort of Shannon signal to noise theory news ought to be something you didn't know before mm-hmm. and since everything has been hacked <laughs> since every single person in America and probably for the UK for that matter their personal details have already been hacked. and probably, It's like not even really news anymore. It's just a constant state of affairs. Uh, you know, the, nothing works properly. Everything has been hacked. Everything's insecure. Nobody so, seems to care much about it. So change your password now. Well, it's not just that. It's also figure out um, when you are hacked, what steps will you take to regain your identity quickly and regain all of all of your things? Because knowing that path is actually half the battle for people because otherwise you find yourself hacked and then suddenly very exposed and scared. Whereas actually if you know some steps you can take, like who to call, what to do, this is the thing that will become a new reality. There's the old um, prevention, detection, and then reporting when there was fraud happening in, in the payments world. Prevention is kind of only gone so far. We're not going to prevent everything. Detect that it's happened early and then doing something about it is, is kind of where we as consumers now found and find ourselves. But I guess that, that leads on to, you know, we're in, suddenly in this world where there are attacks, people have data, and we've now got the data portability regulations coming in, you know, in not so long. It's it's just a, you know, a very different world where suddenly it's my data, I want access to it. I think just to follow up on this, I mean, I think as a general point, uh, as, a, as a general rule, I assume that all emails are frauds. I only read emails as an absolutely last thing, so I assume all emails are bogus. I'm baffled by these stories you read in the papers all the time. Like every single day here you see this story about somebody who got an email purporting to come from their solicitor, bank, lawyer, whoever, telling them to transfer their money to some account or other or whatever. I think it should be illegal to use email for business purposes because it doesn't have strong enough authentication. Solicitors, lawyers, bank, should be using WhatsApp it's got end-to-end encryption, right? Or something that you've at least got to log into before you can start sending messages. That's a very good point. I think that's. I, I think we've become we've normalised the idea that email is secure, and it clearly isn't. And, um, and no yeah. one cares. We're just living with the fact that it's... I think it's very true. But the problem then is that you introduce new frictions. And going back to my original point, like every every 
every innovation brings about new problems because if it's secure, mm. it's not accessible, and if it's yeah. accessible, it's not secure. PG, PG, PG. So here's here's my other point: is the um, self-driving cars, right? So Tesla will do all your updates remotely. So you'll sleep, they'll update your car, and you don't have to worry about it. But I live in fear of having a digital car that when I go try to use that car, it's, it won't let me. It'll be like my phone. It'll be like, no, we're downloading right now, uh-huh. and you you have to wait for five that minutes. That was my and- favorite IoT story. I, I can't remember who it was that told me this, but. Guys, I was on the radio. I heard it. Guys, okay. he got these lights that you can program to set up, and he he was invited a girl over for dinner. So he'd spent ages getting all these lights set up to be in like the most romantic possible setting, and the perfect hue because you can change the colours of them. The perfect hues, right? So lays out the table, invites girl in. She sits down at the table. He flips on his super romantic lighting, and his it goes black, and his phone comes up and says, you know, updating software. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it was like eight minutes. They're sitting there in the dark, <laughs> waiting for the phone. So, and then the lights came back up, and that's like some strange. That's a window into our future. Moving on to to maybe one of the the, the major stories that actually happened in October in terms of it, <laughs> was uh, was the the Reuters story about the blockchain platform it's developed by table, banks to be open source. So. Simon, this is probably one well and truly up your street in terms of uh, everything that came out here. Well, yeah, but if I say the word blockchain, I think David and Izzy are going to jump from my throat because quarter by R3 doesn't meet their definition of what a blockchain is. It doesn't is. meet anyone's definition of what a blockchain is. You see what I mean? Um, but you know, it's, it's blockchain-ish. It's not a blockchain. It, it's become one of those marketing terms like big data that doesn't actually mean anything. Um, and what they are building is something that is interesting in its own right. They're building a way for... Um, banks to exchange smart contracts instead of pieces of paper. Simon, have you ever heard, have you ever read any George Orwell? He did this amazing piece called The Use and Abuse of Language. And it, the parable of that story is that people who misuse language are basically douchebags. And this is what's happening across the board in fintech land with blockchain and the yep. whole nomenclature we'll use what, you know, we'll, we'll use the terminology that suits our agenda until it doesn't. And then we'll pivot and so, pretend so that, you know. I, I don't disagree, but one of the best things I heard this year was blockchain is an excuse, right? So blockchain is an excuse to do things we probably should have done anyway. Blockchain is an excuse to solve problems we probably already should have used. Now that idea to me, I, I think is fundamentally quite useful if it liberates a little bit of budget and gets people to do things they should have been doing. It's it's almost like um, a signal flare to get people to focus where they eventually should. And if what they end up delivering ends up being something that somebody wants to call distributed ledger tech and it has a mixture of PGP encryption and it has a mixture of consensus in there and they have some ledger that people are sharing, then I'm all for that. What people were calling big data five years ago, they're now calling AI, right? So it, wherever you get technology, you get this problem where the the what the executive understands and, and the narrative the executive has spun is very, very different to what the techies actually implement and deal with. And we can be frustrated about that or we can recognize that as a reality and recognize, is this change significant in the market, regardless of what label we put on top of it? And is it significant that a bunch of banks have open sourced some software from a consortium? I don't think that's been done before. I, I haven't seen a precedent for that. That's a, that's a significant market change, whatever label you want to put on it. People have got the narrative about Ethereum, the DAO, and Bitcoin, and then they ask you to come talk to them about that and then say, how can I use it in my business? And you have to walk them back to shared ledgers, which is actually where it's applicable to them because what they're doing with Ethereum and Bitcoin and the DAO is probably not usable by a regulated entity. In fact, I would strongly advise against it. And therefore, starting with somebody wanting you to come talk to them about blockchain and walking them towards shared ledger does take some time. But actually them calling it the blockchain for however long they want to call it for that for I don't think is that bad. 
I think the net net is that blockchain and shared ledger is in what we call the trough of disillusionment because it's not actually delivering anything right now. That's because it's experimentation. And the hardest part of experimentation is not the technology deployment, working out how the hell we got the governance structures and organizations to agree how they're going to share these ledgers. And until you get that, you can't deliver anything with the blockchain. Well, well and right. I were talking Yeah, about- but that's always the core issue, is my point. So, like, and, and this idea that's that it's a technological, this is why I was always a skeptic because I am a realist about people's fallibility and humanity's like but lack of but governance. It's better because people will agree the structures. You know, it might be that no, you've got a problem of agree. governance and I have to fax the stuff to Simon. The fact it's now operating at, you know, okay, 110 transactions a second or something, you know, it's a high quality of problem. You're always improving no, performance. But, but you're not, diff- you're not. I don't want to dwell because we're in November, but like I, I disagree <laughs> fundamentally because um, it works in your little capsule of the universe, but it, it doesn't necessarily work everywhere. <laughs> We've really got to move on, so I'm going to, I'm going to push <laughs> us forward into November. And, and something happened in November that probably will send shockwaves and has certainly changed the share prices of a lot of banks recently, which is the uh, election of Donald Trump as the president-elect of the United States of America. You're saying it wrong. You should say Donald Trump, Trump, Trump. <laughs> and off he went with the Trumpity Trump Trump. Exactly. Uh, there's a Nelly the Elephant <laughs> reference right here on Fintech Insider. That, that's it, pretty pro. Um, I don't know. Anybody have thoughts on this one? Well, I, I went to. <laughs> I, I went seconds. to. I came back and told everyone this was going to happen because I went to Phoenix and Austin, Atlanta, and spoke to a lot of people because I was very curious about it. And I was stunned at the extent of the. You know, because if you, you know, if you're a pinko liberal intellectual and the only places you ever go in new york and san francisco um you you were not aware of the of the depth of the support for trump i I was completely shocked and i came back and told everybody it's almost like i think he's gonna do it are you fed up with the high flute in washington types who all all the politicos yes or no and if the answer is yes vote donald trump yeah um so but i i mean i don't really understand quite how it's all going to pan out because the cabinet that he's put in place is no more representative of those people than no. mainly billionaires yeah so I, I so I, I assume i'm guessing people are going to get fairly disillusioned um, fairly quickly well, but I, I don't know enough about the american system to know what does this mean for fintech and banking though specifically because um you know yes there's been some share price bump but actually you Chris mentioned earlier that there's some pressure now coming from the tech companies to deregulate. Trump has promised to be a deregulation sort of uh, kind of uh, president and have that kind of in office. Do we see ourselves in a world in which Europe innovates through regulation like PSD2 and the UK does and through policy and the US looks to innovate through deregulation or changing how regulation works? Is that is that something that's well, possible? Well, what you're getting at the moment is US fintech companies are going to be taking advantage of the European deregulation and creating new products and services. And that's that's actually quite interesting. Mm. You know, what it means in the US, I think it's impossible to say because if they decide to deregulate banking in general, yeah, uh, and reduce capital requirements and that sort of thing, then there'll be more money to spend on, you know, all the things we like, R and D and technology and, and cool new stuff. Um, if he's going to uh, stimulate um, American industry by imposing a 97% tax on European management consultants from going to the US, then that could have some extremely negative results. So I don't quite know. Um, but I think in terms of what's going on with deregulation, um, I think the fundamental point here is that we've we've put all these really draconian measures 
measures on the banks and there has not been anything to show for it. So we haven't actually seen too much of a rise in consumer lending. We haven't seen the banks reviving small, medium-sized uh, companies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Any so perhaps the bigger picture is we do need some deregulation. Maybe at the end of the day, um, these banks will be able to do a better job than the tech companies because the more we regulate the banks, all that we're doing is creating regulatory arbitrage opportunities for non-banks. And uh, if we if we just realise that you know we're just pushing pushing the problem elsewhere, well, this is, this is then why... perhaps better. It, that's the lesson of the Roman pirates: is that Pompey realised that you can never really change them but you can play jedi mind tricks with them so you effectively give them a safe space you let them operate you know at their leisure but you then kind of slowly make them settle in say sicily well, that's what we did with and them. then before <laughs> you know it you know you know where they all are yeah, and you can attack plan. them with a roman fleet i think probably what we'll have to do is to take the money creation role away from the commercial banks and have the central banks maintain their own digital currency accounts. So a bit like M-Pesa, no, no, run David, by the Bank of Dave, England. that's silly, because as we all know, the Fed is already a private institution made up of the banks, right? You know, I mean, that's not a conspiracy, no, no, I, that's just no, no, the reality. No, no, I'm just saying take the money creation role away from the commercial banks, right? But so the commercial banks and the central banks are, in, like, they are so, one the same thing. So we all get accounts at the Bank of England, a bit like M-Pesa, <clears throat> and I can use that to send money to you or pay you or whatever. And the commercial banks uh, have to do investment and useful and valuable things for the economy instead of just getting money from quantitative easing and keeping it. I mean, they were supposed to, like you just said, we did the quantitative easing, we gave the banks the money, they were supposed to lend it out to people, then we imposed these capital requirements, so they just kept it and paid themselves enormous bonuses, and we've got nothing to show for it. So we don't really want to go through that loop again. On, so on going the back to your question on Donald Trump, it's obviously going to be a bank-friendly administration because Trump's a billionaire. He's filled his cabinet and state with billionaires and millionaires, mainly from Goldman Sachs, and they're all going to be very investment market-friendly and bank-friendly. Hmm. And so probably will be good for fintech. Sun Tzu as well. Keep your enemies close. I mean, you, the, the thing with Trump is that we just don't know. He's a dark horse. He may be playing Jedi mind tricks. He may be being transparent about having his billionaires in, in power, his billionaire friends in power. But, you know, what is interesting is that because he's a dark horse, that gives him a bit of power on the international political stage. Because the one thing we don't know about Putin is what he's thinking ever. Mm. Now we have an American president that we don't know what he's thinking I'm ever. I'm feeling it might be a little bit like uh, Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev. And that Ronald Reagan, um, when he came to power, was viewed as a joke. You know, an act to become a president, for God's sake. You know, how can he run the country and keep his finger off the trigger? And then we look back now and say he was one of the greatest presidents America ever had, or some people say that. I think it's rather tempting, isn't it, to look at Trump as, 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 the, as the sort of the, the main centre of attention. But if you think of him as a symptom and ask what is the cause, the cause, uh, forgive me for paraphrasing, is the substantial disenchantment, dissatisfaction of a very, very large slug of the US population with the status quo. So I'd suggest the impact for fintech is going to be about what fintech can do to satisfy the dissatisfied. And that's going to be, I'd suggest, a message of inclusion. It's going to be about providing services on simple, trustworthy terms. This is not particularly glamorous, but the important insight that Trump but, shows us is that it's important to those But fintech people. can't solve the problems that 
the people are having because it's all about social capital it's all about those intangible like benefits that have been taken away from them because of technology and all the intangible uh, disadvantages that have been thrust on, uh, upon them so like you know um, the standard um, uh, Eric Brynjolfsson defense of tech which is oh you know we can't we're not measuring the gains from technology because it's all intangible and if we did then GDP would be much higher but that same argument can also be applied to the negatives right I'm not suggesting that fintech is the solution to the concerns of the of the of the disenfranchised and the disenchanted but on the margins fintechs that can contribute to those that very large constituency will gain. I think being able to engage a bunch of people that mainstream banking can't currently because of the operating costs that are involved in their organizations make it and and the the idea that there's this huge population of people Mm. in most even uh, you know developed countries that are completely unbanked that I think can can be brought about can't it? Well I really unfortunately have to go so I um I will leave by answering that question with a prediction which is that um it occurs. It occurred to me the other day when Uber was saying that um, in the future of self-driving cars, you know, if you behave badly in the car um, or even if to a driver for as long as they have them, they will start sort of giving you negative points on your profile, or eventually they'll ban you. So Sounds you can't. Like black mirror to me. Yeah. Well, you'll, eff- you'll effectively be discriminated against, and there will be a thing in the future called taxi inclusion problems, right? <laughs> so we're we're just transferring the financial inclusion problem um, and transferring it over to the taxi sector. Sure. Uh, and this is because blacklisting is just a, a phenomenon in society. That's how we deal with like excluding what's, what's black. What's the correlation back between? I mean, because that's saying like because I've got money, I wouldn't be a bad driver. I reckon no, it's, it's probably an inverse correlation. It, it doesn't. No, the point it is, doesn't necessarily fix the problem. It moves it. I think. No, but you've seen people driving Audis around in the street, right? So, so basically, what's going to happen is all the people from around here are going to be assholes to their drivers and bad drivers and cut people and whatever, and they'll get banned from driving. And they'll have to take Ubers everywhere. And that's good. Yeah, but then right? Uber be, will ban you if you act like a dick in their car. And then you'll be totally tax, like transport excluded. They and you'll, be, and you'll end up... You pay more. No, the point is, is incentives, you know, carrot and stick. There has to be two sides to everything if you're going to have any kind of economic behavioral framework. And the issue here is that financial exclusion comes about because of the negative, uh, you know, sticks that are in place to to you know threaten you with with exclusion if you be- behave badly you cannot get rid of that if you solve financial exclusion you inadvertently take away the stick from society so it's a paradoxical situation so if you if you start fixing that problem here the bad behaviors just end up being transferred somewhere else unless there is a miraculous sort of state of affairs where we all wake up tomorrow morning and we all share the same behaviors and we don't get offended by each other but that's very unlikely because as far as i know every time you get married into a new family whatever not that i've done it many times but you you can you never get on with your with your but, parents-in-law. But, but it just then, doesn't happen because you have different cultural frameworks. But then how's progress made? Because you're always pushing the problem on. I'm saying cultural differences are just a matter of reality. So, what I want to know about this, though, because I'm worried about this banning. Of, will we get rated by the sex robots? Because <laughs> I can see that this could have some very tragic and unfortunate outcomes. <laughs> And I, and I fear, Dave, if we ever have to market this podcast, I think that might be the quote. So <laughs> moving quickly on to, to December and what feels like quite a... I mean, uh, I'll be okay. I'm just... I'm not, you're, you're worried, worried for me. Just, yeah, just yeah. a friend. You're yeah, yeah. dying early. 
Um, we ha- we had Donald Trump's first kind of, um, I guess, major faux pas in a long list of minor faux pas was taking the call with a Taiwanese leader, which is quite an interesting one, which was pretty much against the US one China policy, which, again, seems like quite a bit of a, uh, a screw up there on, on his part so early in uh, not even being the president just yet. So odd one, right? He did it on purpose. Do you think? <laughs> I think so. Why would he do that? Just to rattle China's cage and let them know that he's not going to be a pushover. I guess it's a Friendly pretty with Russia, tough with China. Pretty bold claim to make, isn't it? In terms of actually where we're going, and uh, it kind of uh, scares me quite quite terribly. And actually, probably the the major story that was coming out all of this December, and actually probably a lot earlier on in this in, in sense as well, is actually China's rise to the top of pretty much everything that is fintech, either from an investment perspective or uh, in terms of the regulatory changes that are happening in that part of the world. So. How do we see sort of China's rise to the top of the, the rankings over the course of the year? I just had lunch with um, the head of Alipay Europe. And um, what's interesting in that conversation is that uh, she was talking around how they see the world. Um, and in particular, she's from Sequan district. And um, when she went to university, came out and all her friends were going to go and join the big consulting firms like Ernst & Young and Deloitte or whatever. And were shocked that she'd gone to some internet startup company called Alibaba and you know, Ali, their Alipay division. Um, they're all a bit jealous now, obviously, because uh, it's turned around completely. And you know, right from day one, they've always seen themselves as a global company, um, not as a, a Chinese company. And I think the mistake that a lot of us are making um, is that we don't have our eye close to the Chinese developments in technology and finance, particularly because they start with no legacy and no constraints of structural thinking. So they just do it in a completely different way. And then once it's up and running, um, just shift it from millions to billions because the key thing about China and America, and they're the two main markets where fintech gets really interesting, you know, we think it's Europe, but Europe, um, it's got so many challenges about scalability because um, of country barriers, even with harmonization. Southeast Asia has these problems, which is why Singapore you know, is a great fintech center, but you can't take what works in Singapore to Malaysia, to Thailand, to Indonesia, to all the other countries because they all have different variations and flavors. In China, you can take something overnight like Anipay and get you know, 100 million people using it, 500 million people using it. Um, and now they're going into the States at Money 2020. They were saying, you know, Alipay is going global. Uh, and um, in, in Europe, they're going um, across Europe with Wirecard. So I, I think from the Chinese perspective, um, you know, right now we talk about Ant Financial as the only one that's crept out of China. But I think we should watch Tencent, Badu, Lufax, and all the other guys because they're not going to stay there forever. Mm. Yeah, I think any of these. You know, any of these countries where they've got such a crazy scale at doing anything, you know, we, we many people we've talked to do POCs with a million people. You know, that's just a, a crazy ability to kind of step into a market that is so uh, business case positive for anything you do. It's hard to compete with. Right? What a home market they've got, right? It's a, you can grow a massive scale business just by doing something that for, for that market is relatively small, you know, in percentage terms. You move 1% of that market, you've got a phenomenal amount of people. You've got 10 million people there. It's, it's just huge. That business would be the size, you know, half the size of the UK's biggest banks immediately from moving 1% of the 
the country. So they've got that massive home market, but then secondarily, they've got a cultural ability to very quickly learn from everybody else in the world and then start improving upon it. We're seeing this uh, with Huawei now and and, uh, and Xiaomi, uh, the handset manufacturers. You'll see it probably more now as they move into some of the fintech companies. I mean, Ant Financial more so than, um, than Alibaba is the really interesting one because they're a bank without a banking license. They do lending, they do um, savings, they do payments, they do everything in between. But they also have services for people who are high net worth. They have all kinds of data services to help small companies manage their stock. And a really good social network. <laughs> it, it, it's really integrated in a way. It's, it's almost like where Amazon will be in five to ten years' time. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, I mean, my recommendation to anybody who's um, you know listening to this podcast and wants to know what the future of fintech looks like, go go do your research on Ant Financial. Have you found a lot of people, Ben, sort of uh, coming here from from China to, I guess, learn of what kind of got the UK ahead at a certain pace? Well, certainly that's the way in which many visitors present it. But I don't think that any of us here are complacent about uh, about where to look to learn. Uh, uh, as you say, I think uh, you know we we watch closely. We're keen to learn from what we uh, know about in China, and and certainly I think uh, you know the the UK China fintech bridge announced here relatively recently by. Um, uh, Simon Kirby, the Economic Secretary of the Treasury, there is a, a huge amount of interest and we're very pleased to have uh, Silk Ventures here who are helping companies travelling in both directions with that very specific sort of country-to-country support, helping really to unlock the challenges that you face when you're trying to import or export capability and insight uh, because the differences are enormous, whether it's the, the different legacy systems, the different regulatory environments. Um, and I think that the uh, the smart advice that, that that seems to seems to be permeating level thirty nine is yes, you've got to watch closely. Mm. Uh, you've got to be quite careful about how you engage. It's a it's a it's a difficult market for a Western company to uh, to operate in successfully. Yeah. But um. But but th- it's very important to be scanning and and building relationships. Great. And two thousand and sixteen. That is a wrap. What do you think was the biggest fintech headline this year? If you disagree with the ones we've picked or you'd like to get a bit of a shout out, feel free to give us a shout on Facebook and Twitter. That's it for now. Stay tuned for our fintech predictions for 2017. 